Okay. So yesterday, we, we left off talking about how there's no place devoid of Hashem. Um, which is a hard idea. Because, again, once you can think of something conceptually, right? once you have some sense of what you are talking about, there's also a sense of how that thing could not be. And so the two statements of the Zohar, Leis Machshavat no thought can think of Hashem, and Leis Asopanumine, no place is devoid of Him, are actually logically interconnected. Right? That, if, that if Hashem would be something that one could think about, then there would be a notion of His absence. Good? Okay. That was the simple idea. And now we're going to go deeper. Where is Hashem? Everywhere. Nowhere. There's no place. There's no place to void of him. Good. Alright, so we have three answers. Everywhere. Nowhere. Nowhere. There's no place to void of him. Now. I'm going to ask you another question. But before I ask a question, make sure we're all on the same page. Two plus two equals four. Yes? Okay. We're going to call that um, we're going to call that an entity. We're going to call that a thing. That, that fact, that truth, that, that idea, however you want to put it, that two plus two equals four, that we're going to treat that as, it's, as if it's something. Right? You know, the picture is something. I'm something. Two plus two equals four is something. Just to illustrate what I mean for a second, um, if I were to like put two plus two equals four in a filing cabinet, I might put it under something like say mathematics, right? I might also put like six minus three equals three in the same filing cabinet, right? But I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put um, the importance of being honest in that same filing cabinet. Like that's a different kind of a thing, right? Good. So they're not like physical things, but they're kinds of things. Good. Okay, so 2 plus 2 equals 4 is a kind of thing. In fact, if I was going to be really careful in filing, I might put 2 plus 2 equals 4 specifically under arithmetic, right? For the math in general. Right? The same way, kind of like, there's furniture, but then there's tables more specifically. So the kind of a thing. Okay? The fancy word for this is an intelligible. So a physical thing is something you hold with your hands, or at least in theory, if you have the right hands, right? Some things are too small, my hands are too pudgy. Right, what's an example? Something's too small, my hands are too budgy for. I can't really pick up. No, I can knit. Paper. I can pick up paper. No. How about a, how about how about how about I can pick up a needle? Like separate between strengths. How about a how about an individual cell? Can I like pick up one individual cell? Like like. Or an atom, right? Those are like my, my my hands are too pudgy for those things, right? Okay. And then there are things that my hands are just too small for, right? Like I can't pick up a mountain, right? A mountain, right? Okay. But in theory, if I had small enough hands or big enough hands, right, I could. Right? Any physical thing you can touch and manipulate with your hands, right? Intelligibles. Those are things that instead of using your hands, what do you use? Mind. Your mind. You use your mind to grab hold. And by the way, some ideas are too sublime and subtle. For your mind to hold on to your, your mind is too coarse and pudgy. 
And some ideas, right, are too profound that your mind just gets overwhelmed by them, right? But some ideas like just the right size, like the Goldilocks intelligibles. Okay, so two plus two equals four. It's like, it's like just right. It's like good enough. Okay. Where is two plus two equals four? Like, where is that? Well, if I have two apples, if I have two apples and I have another two apples, how many apples do I have? So, would I not say that the two plus two equals four is also where the apples are? Because the apples seem to follow that rule, right? Everything follows that rule. Everything follows that rule. And is there ever a case where I have two things and another of those said two things where I don't then have four things? No. So is it, so in that sense, everywhere it is true that two plus two equals four? So two plus two equals four exists everywhere. Yeah. Like God. But not like God. Why not? Okay, before, whether why not like God. Okay. So when, when someone says Hashem, you know the song, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere. Yes. What, what does that mean? It's, it's right Wherever you look. Wherever you look. Wherever you look, continue the sentence. Wherever you look, what? God will be found. It's like, no matter where you are, when you sit down to think about it, two plus two is always four. And no matter where you are, whenever you count things, two things and other two things always equals? Four. Right? But so, 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 want. what? Everywhere, I two plus two. It doesn't exist everywhere you look. Wait, where not? There's only one building in front of me. That doesn't, two plus two equals four. Sure. That's true. But again, two plus two equals four is an intelligible. It's not the buildings. I'm not saying everywhere you look, there's two buildings, another two buildings, there's four buildings. I'm saying that building does follow the rules of two buildings. Right. Now, in other words, for instance, if that building, say, has two walls that you can see from the northeast and two walls that you can see from the southwest, making it for a total of mm-hmm. four walls, see? But two plus two equals four is the only difference in your mind. Really? When you're looking no. for it, you're not, you see when you're it. Not looking, when you're not thinking with that, Okay, one second, one second, one second. And if, and if somebody is blind, God forbid, does that mean things don't have color anymore? No. Well, for him, that's for him. I mean, no. Well, I said we're going to treat two plus two equals four as a thing. That's the stuff. That's, an, it's an, it's a, it's a thing. It's not a physical thing. It's a different kind of a thing. It's an intelligible. Yeah. You're just going to have to treat two plus two equals four as a thing for the rest of this class. Sorry. It's not a physical thing. By the way, I mean, do you believe in God? Yeah, he's a Okay, so you, do you believe in a soul? Yeah. Okay, so you're comfortable with non-physical things, right? So two plus two equals four is also a non-physical thing. But it's not about comfortable, but is it actually everywhere? Well. Well, the rule is always true everywhere. And is, and, and is that not what two plus two equals four? It is not, it is not, a, it is not a conceptual Rule, it's a, yeah, so it's, it's everywhere, isn't it? Yeah? Okay. There is such a view in Jewish philosophy, in Jewish theology, that treats God analogously to this. Okay. Hasidus does not think this is correct. Two plus two equals four is actually nowhere in the physical world with the exception of the human brain. That's what it's supposed to be. I not, no, but I want to be clear. I'm not saying that it's not a thing. It is a thing. And, I'll, I'll, and I'm going to go further. Just like 
this picture exists whether I'm holding it or not. Two plus two equals four exists whether I'm thinking about it or not. It exists, it's an entity, it exists. But it doesn't exist in the physical world. It exists in a different world. We need a name for that world, okay? It's like this picture exists in this base measure, it does not exist in my house, right? Two plus two equals four does not exist in the physical world. Again, with the exception of the human brain, which we'll get back to in a second. Where does it exist? In, abstract. in an abstract world, in a, in, a, in a world of intelligibles. In other words, this physical world is inhabited by physical entities and the intellectual realm, the realm of intelligibles inhabited by intelligible things, by non-physical things. Okay? And um, I have this picture. And if I put the picture on the table, it interacts with the table, right? In this case, the table stops the picture from keeping going down to the ground, right? My hand interacts with the picture, right? In fact, everything the picture interacts with is a physical entity, just like the picture. That makes sense? Physical entities interact with physical entities. So now let's think. Can a physical entity interact with the idea, the concept, the truth, the, the intelligible entity called two plus two equals four. Can they interact with it? Or reverse, can, that, can, can the intelligible entity move it around? No. Like, can two plus two equals four like move no. things around? Can it stop things from moving? No. Okay. Now it is true that for some strange reason, some intelligible entities happen to be very similar or parallel certain physical entities. I'll give you an example of what I mean. Two plus two equals four is an idea. When I count apples, it turns out that every time I have two apples and other two apples, I always end up with four, four apples, right? right? There is a sh subtle shift that the human mind makes when you, when you move from talking about apples to intelligible entities. When you talk to little children and you ask them, really little children, and you ask them what two plus two is, they don't understand the question. Because in their mind, what is the word two referring to? The amount of something. So you can have two apples, you can have two pairs. You can have something more abstract like an age, although they're not really sure what that means, but they just know that there's more and less of it and it's better to have more of it for some reason, right? So being, being two is better than being one and being three is better than being two because there's more. And they know that like two candies is better than one candy, so yeah. Unless it's bad stuff, you know, yeah. right? So, it describes, in other words, the, the actual thing that the actual thing is a physical thing, right? And then something shifts at a certain point in the human mind, and two is an actual thing in its own right. It's not two of something. Okay. And you can, if you, everyone here went to high school? Yeah. Okay. So I'll tell you when this happened, where you can see that this happened. So do you remember? In math class, you're learning like, you know, addition, one plus one equals two, right? Um, and, then you, and, then you, and then you learn like, like subtraction, and multiplication, and division, right? Okay. And at some point, you get a math problem 
that sounds like this. What is one third divided by one half? And someone goes, let me ask you a question. If I have two apples and I have half of those apples, how many apples do I have? One. If I have 10 apples and I have half of those apples, how many do I have? Five. Okay. Right? I, I just counting the apples, right? It's very, it's very good, right? Okay. And so the teacher says, it's like, you just, you just take whatever you have and you divide into that many pieces, right? Or that many sections, right? And that's how we all learn. And it's like very simple, simple. And then you get a math problem like divided by a half. Now, what does that mean to divide by a half? I take the number of apples that I have and I put them in two. How many sections? Divided by one means I have all the apples. Divided by two means I have two, two. groups of apples. Divided by half means I have? Double half. That's why you multiply by yourself. Two. Um, some people find what I'm just, some people find what I'm saying like incredibly simple and boring. Some people find it frustrating and some people are trying to figure it out and they're almost there. Do you know why? So what, where's where's the what? Because, because if I start thinking in terms of, if I'm thinking in terms of apples, that makes this problem easier to deal with or harder to deal with? Harder. More difficult. Because if you think about it in terms of numbers, it's not. If I have one third of an apple, and I divide that one third of that apple by half an apple, okay. how many apples do I have? Okay. <laughs> like, you know, what does that mean? Right? Once I like, drop the apples out of the whole thing, maybe I have hope of understanding it, maybe not, right? Okay? Okay. Yeah, one third of an one third of. No, because you You see what you're doing? You're manipulating. You're manipulating symbols in your mind to represent how to deal with. hundred percent. That that's that's fine, right? No, it's because abstract abstraction intelligibles are very hard to hold on to. So we use symbols and words to represent them to refer to them, right? hundred percent. I'm just mean. But my point is, like, you notice, like, the apples just make this thing more difficult. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's just so weird. Okay, and there's a shift, and some people like do it really quickly. Like there are some first graders who like get this shift, and there's some people, even when they're adults, like it's very hard for them to like. But aren't numbers supposed to refer to things? Okay. Lahavdil, um, not to compare the 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 profane, the mundane, the unholy with with the Torah. Um, there's something called Gemara and Mishnah. Some of you learn Mishnah? Some of you even learn Gemara? Okay. When the Gemara and Mishnah speak about things, what are they really speaking about? Are they speaking about physical entities or intelligible entities? They're speaking about intelligible entities, but they... Right. So, for instance, if you have a law that speaks about um, somebody's cow, is this really about cows? No, there's some concept there that is being discussed, and the cow is the, meat, is the proxy to do that with. And so what ends up happening is some people never get past that point, and they're never really able to really, really, really appreciate what's happening in the Torah. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. So, 
Now, is it true that every intelligible matches up with something in the physical world? No. No, there's some, there's some things which you can, you know, you, 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 you can understand and make sense of and debate their validity, legitimacy and validity, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's anything in the physical world that that corresponds to. Morality. We are. No, no, that's like this, yeah. In other words, one person kills another person, right? The morality of that is that a physical thing. Can I, if I only, in other words, like this, I can see four apples, I can see two apples. I can see two apples and two apples and zoom out and see four apples, right? So I can, I can, that, those, there, there's this kind of paralleling between the physical reality and the, and this, this, this abstract intelligence, right? When I look at the morality, can I like actually see the morality of something with my eyes? Can I touch it with my hands? No. Taste it with my tongue? No. So there's nothing physical about the morality of things. And yet, in the mind, is, is, the moral, is morality, you know, morality and immorality, is that like a real thing? Yeah. Okay. okay. So there's a realm of intelligibles and a realm of physical entities. Good? Mm-hmm. Two parallel worlds. Okay, good. Do they interact with each other? Yeah. When do you see them interacting with each other? When have you ever you seen? Ah, so there's something weird about people, that people's minds engage with the physical. The spirit. No, the people's mind engage with the intelligible reality. Our bodies engage with the physical reality, and for somehow our minds and our bodies are able to connect through the magic of the brain and the soul, and that's weird. By the way, that's so weird and so incomprehensible that we have a special bracha for it. Does anyone know which bracha we say that, for the fact that that happens? No. We, after you go to the bathroom? Asher Yatsar. At the end of Asher Yatsar it says, Rofei Chobasar, he heals all the flesh. And what's the last part? Mafla says, he acts in a wondrous way, in an unfathomable way. What's so unfathomable? What does God do that's so unfathomable, so wondrous, so beyond ability to really make sense of? Everything. No, one thing. <laughs> that a physical piece, a physical piece of meat and a mind somehow work as if they are one thing. So when your mind determines that something is immoral, your brain can get your body to act correspondingly. That's very weird, okay? But in general, taking now take the person out. Right? These non-physical entities, these intelligibles like 2 plus 2 equals 4 or any other thing that is not a very, it doesn't exist in the physical world. We are misled into thinking it exists in the physical world because we can walk around the physical world and our minds, which are connected to our brains, can still access it. So we're actually living in how many worlds at once? Two. Two. At least, yeah. I'll give you a very, just a simple example, okay? You walk down the street. Let's say someone's door is open. Do you feel like you could walk in that door? No. No, you don't feel like you walk in. You're a very normal human being. You don't feel like you walk in the door. Why? Because it's not your house. It's not your house. Now, is that a physical reality? That's a legal reality, right? Yeah. It goes in the realm of the intelligibles. But it's very real to you. So much so that it, you, 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 you feel like there's something inhibiting you from going into their house without... It's not, ownership is not a physical thing. There's such a thing as physical. <laughs> physical, you can't see ownership. You can't touch ownership. You can't taste ownership. Okay. Again, so people have this weird thing that we exist in at least two different worlds, if not more. Okay. But if we take that out, 
Um, the realm of the intelligibles and the realm of the physical are two different realms, right? Okay. It would be weird if someone says, I was walking down the street and I bumped into an idea. I bumped into an intelligible. Right? You know, like, what does that mean? Right? I was sitting next to an intelligible. Like, it doesn't mean... Hey, right? So they're not really here. Okay. So now, let's go back to Hashem for a second. Where is Hashem? Is Hashem here like the picture is here? Or is Hashem here like... Two plus two equals four is here. Like morality is here. Which one? Both. No place to All three. In other words, is he here in the sense that I can always be aware of him in some sense? Or is he like actually here in the physical world? Okay, again, there are there is such a view in Judaism that that's okay. In other words, that in other words. That God's being, it can't be conceptualized, no place devoid of him. But in some sense, he's not actually here and the physical things are here because physical things, they exist in some totally different sense. Okay? So there's kind of like two, two layers of reality. There's the layer of reality where God inhabits and there's a layer of reality where the non-God things inhabit. So he is in our One second, what is it? There is such an idea. No, not, that was an analogy. It wasn't a description of God. Are intelligibles here? Can you touch them? Can you sit next to them? Can you take them with you? Mm-hmm. Oh, I got no. 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 Okay. Can, are physical objects here? Yeah. Okay, good. Now, is God like an intelligent? Is God, when you say God is here. Is he here in a physical sense or in an... In that other sense. sense. Oh. Well, if you say in that other sense, then the physicality of the physical world is devoid of... God. That's what would follow, right? That's right. That's why I said today's class is harder. So God is not here because he's physical. Right? Why is, in other words, in other words like this. Let's go back to the intelligibles for a second. An intelligible is something that has limits to its being because there's defined characteristics of it. For instance, I'll give you an example. Um, Everything that's intelligible has to make sense. It has to become some kind of internal cohesion. In other words, not everything actually counts as an intelligible. I'll give you an example, okay? If I were to say, um, it is moral to act immorally, that's not intelligible. That's just nonsensical, right? Like, there's stuff you might not understand. That's not that you don't understand. That, that, that's like, unless I'm using it as a trick of language. Or for, but if I mean that, like, strictly speaking, that, that makes, that, that there's nothing, it, it can't exist in the realm of the intelligence. I can say the words. It doesn't mean anything, though. Why would something like... Well, just one second. Mm-hmm. Okay. On the other hand, um, plenty of stuff in the physical world, it doesn't necessarily have to, like, make any, any deep sense. It just, it just is that way. Like, why is the picture here? As opposed to there. It just, yeah, it have to be that way, right? There's an arbitrariness about physical things. There is an, an essentialness, a necessity, a reasonability about intelligibles. They're very just different kinds of things. So they both have their own kind of definition of what makes them the kind of thing that they are. 
So if God doesn't really have a distinct definition that makes God what he is, then what keeps him out of the realm of the physical? In other words, he's not in the physical world because he's physical. He's not in the physical world because... Be, no. Yeah. An intelligible thing cannot be in the physical world. Again, there's a weird thing happening in the human brain. An intelligible thing can't be... You cannot pick up an idea and take it with you. You cannot... You ever read the book Fahrenheit 451? Yeah. Fahrenheit 451 is a society, much like ours, which is against people actually knowing anything. And so there's now, there's this idea of uh, firemen. Um, it doesn't really work when you're politically correct. Because if you say firefighters, it doesn't work anymore. It only works if you're not politically correct. But firemen now have a new job. Rather than putting out fires, their job is to burn books with fire. So if someone finds a book, you call the fireman, and what do the firemen do? Burn the book. But this ends up being futile. Why? Because what makes the books bad is not the physical, but the intelligible. And you can't burn intelligible things, right? Right, the ideas, right? And those ideas, and the whole idea is that they, ha- they, 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 they are real and live on independently. And as long as there's one person who's able to access them, they're going to continue to pass from person to person. There's no way to stop it. Okay? So an intelligible thing doesn't interact with the physical world. It's not affected by the physical world. The physical things are not affected or interacted by intelligible. They're just like, they, they, they live in independent universes. I'm using the word universe intelli- in, specifically. A universe is the sum totality of that exists. If you are an intelligible, you don't recognize the existence of physicality. If you are a physical thing, you don't recognize the existence of intelligibility. If you're a person, you're weird. You live in two universes at once and you messed up, okay. But, so that means... Each of them are limited by defining characteristics, right? What defining characteristics does God have? None. So what, right, that's why you can't conceptualize him. So what prevents God from being present in the physical world? Nothing. What prevents God from being in the intelligible world? Nothing. So he's not there because, to put this, to put this, <laughs> he doesn't need to play by the rules of those places to be there. It's not that, like, intelligible things have defining characteristics. The physical world has defining characteristics, and they just don't match. So the physical thing, the physical world doesn't allow for the presence of intelligible entities. Intelligible, the intelligible world, right, they, if you're discussing ideas with somebody, and, and your argument is, well, I once saw it, it's like a bad argument. Because, like, so, I mean, so you saw it, I mean... Just because something happened in particular doesn't mean there's any like, truth or validity to it itself. So, right? so they don't admit each other. Okay? You want to give this a very bad analogy, but illustrate the point. Um, you know the little game that kids have where there's like, little, little babies have where there's these block shapes and like, there's a circle and there's a square and, and they have to stick them in the pegs? And you can't stick the square in the circle and you can't stick the circle in the square because they just don't match? That's because they all have fixed shapes but you could pour water into both because it doesn't have a fixed shape. If nothing inherently defines God, there's no characteristic that defines him, not the characteristics of physicality, not the characteristics of intelligibility, there's anything for preventing God from participating and being present in the physical world? No, but when he's there, he's not there in the way the physical things are there. And when he's in the intelligible, he's not way the intelligible things. So there's literally no notion of being beyond God. Even the notion that God isn't physical, doesn't mean that like physicality is on a different level of existence, different plane of existence than God. And so there's literally no going beyond God. 
even if something is physical, it hasn't gone beyond God. Okay? If you were to go into a pagan temple engaged in sacrificial, human sacrificial worship, is God there? Yeah. He's there, right? Like, like really there. Really, 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 really there. If you say what we've just been saying. If you didn't say what we said in today's class, you only said what we said in yesterday's class, you could like, well, I mean, he's, he's there, but like in the sense that like all the people there could be aware of God, but not like he's actually there there. And so like some, some Jewish thinkers are very disturbed with the idea of God being in a pagan temple where human sacrifice is taking place or other such horrific things. And they would preserve it like God is aware of there and, we're, and, the, and you could be aware of God and there's some kind of like, but not like he's actually there. But Chosidus takes the view that if God has really nothing that defines him, then there's nothing that precludes him from actually being present on every plane or modality of existence. So even though these intelligible things cannot exist in the physical world, the physical things cannot exist in the intelligible world, God can exist equally in both because there's nothing, there's, he doesn't have defining characteristics that limit his being in any way. Him following the rules in that world would limit him. Right, he's, he's, he's here without, right. So he's in the physical world without being physical. He's in the intelligible world without being intelligible. intelligible. Is he in the emotional world? Yeah. Without being? This gets right. So there's no layer or mode or form of being that could somehow like be beyond God. That's like the water. The, to make that a very physical analogy, think about just like water doesn't have a fixed shape, so it can enter any shape. God has no defining characteristics, so he could be present in any kind of reality. Unlike a spiritual or or emotional or or uh, intelligible thing. God is not an idea and God is not a feeling and God is not a spirit and God is not... There's a story of a famous chassid who was a big philosopher named Meshigarari and um, he's like very into the deep con- concepts in chassidus and um, there was another chassid whose name was Abzalm Meshe and he was known for um, being very direct to put it mildly very intense having a lot of integrity and very direct so one time Zama Moshe says to Moshe Gerari, he says, tell me, tell me what really, like, what is the being of God, right? What is the essential being of God? Can you, like, tell me what that is? And so Moshe Gerari is smart. He realizes he's being set up, and so he doesn't say anything. But Zama Moshe keeps pushing him and pushing him and pushing him and pushing him and flattering him. Like, you're so smart, you learn so much. And there's a thing that teaches us about flattery. When you flatter people about a certain characteristic that they have, what happens? that characteristic becomes much more manifest in their psyche. So like if you compliment somebody about how they're very nice and sensitive to people and when they're barely sensitive to people, what happens? They become that. There's a good story of the Alter Rebbe about this, but I'm not going to So after like a half hour of like telling him <laughs> how smart he is and how deeply he understands things, eventually, you know, he loses his better judgment and he starts saying, he says, well, the essential being of God is, and before he can get the next word out of his mouth, Zama Moshe slaps him across the face because Zama Moshe was very direct, as I said. And he said, the essential being of God isn't. The minute you want to tell me what defines the essential being of God, not God anymore. And if you take that really seriously, like we're doing now, what does that mean? 
There's nothing that prohibits God from being part of the physical world, even though he is not. And that means he's nothing like an intelligible idea. He's nothing like an emotion. Because those things can't be part of the physical world. Good? Okay, now that we know all of that, we have a problem with God speaking. That was the, that was the whole point here, right? So let's go back and read the text. When a man utters a word, the breath emitted in speaking is something that can be sensed and perceived as a thing apart, separated from its source, namely the ten facts of the soul itself. But with the Holy One, blessed be he, his speech is not having fed separate from his blessed self, for there's nothing outside of him, there's no place devoid of him. Therefore, his speech is not like our speech. Okay. So what is an essential characteristic of speech? It's outside of the speaker. It, now, why is that an essential characteristic of speech? Can I speak to myself? No, no, no. Can I speak to myself? How do I do that? So this is the thing. Is speaking to myself the same as thinking? Let us ask that question. So I would like you to do the following. Next time you learn something that is very difficult, I would like you to think it through and I would like you also to speak it out. Which of those is easier? Thinking. Thinking? <laughs> Speaking it out makes it clearer to your thoughts. No, you know sometimes people, know, like, they say it's clear in their mind, but they can't word it properly. So, uh, well, you can read well see, here's the thing. If, if, it, if it's clear in your mind and you can't word it properly, then it's not clear in your mind. Mm-hmm. You just don't realize it. Speaking is easier. Speaking is easier. Speaking it out is easier. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about why it is in a second, but it is. Although it's thinking and speaking are not just difference in some small thing. Other people can hear what I'm saying. There is a very big difference between speaking and thinking. I remember when I realized this the first time in my life. It's one of, one of my formative events in my life. When I was in um, elementary school, um, we had, it must have been like fifth or sixth grade or something like this. We had, you know these books where, you, where you, like in English class you have like a, a book of like different like short stories and different things that the teacher is supposed to teach you? So we had one of these books. Um, I don't remember what it was called. And then afterwards there's questions, right? And then you to see people's reading comprehension. So the, the way the teacher, I don't know, every lesson this way, but one, is that everybody was supposed to read the, the story, you know, and then the teacher would ask the questions and people would raise your hand and so somebody question was asked and someone raised their hand very excitedly they opened their mouth after they were called and they started talking and as they were talking you could see the horror on their face as they realized that what they were saying made and I was thinking to myself it struck me it's like but they wanted to answer the question which means before they opened their mouth they thought it made so what happened it didn't make sense but somehow thinking about it didn't allow them to realize that, but just speaking it out all of a sudden made them realize that it didn't make sense. Why? Because you're hearing yourself talk. Because speech exists outside of you, what's contained in your speech has to kind of stand on its own terms, on its own merits. 
I can cheat. I can fudge it in my own mind. I can hand wave. Yeah. By the way, you'll see people do this. The, when they can't explain things, um, and so they, they, they make hand motions and stuff. They can't explain. There is a way in which that when you try to put something into words, that thing has to stand on its own merits. And all of a sudden, you are not, you, you can't use the fact that for whatever reason, you would like it to make sense or some aspect of it is reasonable, whatever. Like all of a sudden, like you're relating to it as if it's its own thing. And the flaws in it become more apparent. Give you an analogy for this idea. When you, um, when you're doing an assessment of yourself in terms of your moral character, are you the best person to do that assessment? No. Why not? It's very, it's very hard to see yourself objectively. It's very hard to see yourself from the outside, right? Speech is placing something beyond yourself. That's what you are doing when you are speaking. It's not just, oh, it happens to be the words are sound waves in the air, right? That's how we speak. It's a physical thing. If a soul were to speak without a body, it'd still have to somehow go beyond the soul because what it's speaking is it's making it a reality beyond myself. That's what speech is about. I mean, why is it that we use speech to communicate to other people? Because speech is that I can actually take something that used to be within myself and make it outside myself, right? That's what I am doing when I am speaking. And now when it's outside myself, <laughs> if it was relying on like me to make it make sense, and it doesn't really make sense on its own terms, well, it doesn't make sense. Now, so who can't speak then? Hashem can't speak by definition. It's not, it's not, oh, like eh, he doesn't speak because he's not physically, like by definition, he cannot speak. I'm going to give you an example of what I mean by by definition, God can't speak. God cannot die. Not, and, and I mean that, like, God has eyes, and I will defend that God has eyes. Now, by eyes, as we discussed yesterday, do I mean these things? No. no. What do I mean? The ability to see. And by seeing, what do I mean? I mean the fact that he can, like, observe what things look like from a particular vantage point. That he has an awareness of things, right? He's knowledge of those things, right? But, his, but in, in the way he possesses that knowledge is fundamentally different, right? He doesn't gain that knowledge, right? Okay, fine. But in as much as I know what I contained in what I mean when I say I and I refer to this thing, contained in that is some of the meaning of what I mean when I speak about God having eyes, right? I just need to do the hard work of figuring out what I mean. But God can't die. Like, that's wrong. Why? What's death? The loss of life. Is that not what death is? Yes. Right? Rocks do not die. Why do rocks not die? Because they're not alive, right? Things which are not alive cannot uh, die, right? The lo- death is the loss of life. Okay, now, what else can't die? Idea. Well, that, let's not talk about okay. that. Maybe they can. I would argue they can die, actually. Uh-huh. Well, if death means the loss of life, Any anything which doesn't possess life cannot. God. Okay, does God possess life? In other words, is God a kind of a being that has another element called life that he possesses that enlivens him? No. So, so there's, like, like God, like, in other words, I want to converse this. 
Is it correct to say God is alive? Yes. Yes. To say God is alive, you can say. But God doesn't possess life. I'll give you a simple analogy for this. Uh, does fire, is fire hot? Yeah. Is boiling water hot? Yeah. But boiling water is hot because it has received heat, right? Mm-hmm. Could the boiling water cool down? Yeah. Can the fire cool down? Yeah. Why not? Right, right. It, fire is hot. It doesn't really possess heat. Thinking of one thing possessing another quality is not really the way of thinking about it, right? Okay, so if God is essentially a living being, whatever living means, then he can't die. Not because he never had, not because he never had a life, but because in some sense he is the life itself. Okay, so like certain things, it just does not make sense to refer to God. Not the eyes we can work with, right? So, I would think, before I learned the altar, I would say, God can speak. Obviously, he can speak, right? Speaking is a form of communication. But what is speaking? Speaking is taking things that were within you and placing them. Does God have an outside of him? No. So can God talk? No. No. But then why didn't it just say that God just has thought? That's a good question. In other words, what is the... In other words... I use speech for communication because speech is placing things beyond myself. But speech is placing things beyond myself. It's taking things that were internal and making them external, outside. There's no outside of God. In any sense. So there's no God speaking. So now let's stop here. What problem do we have? God speaks. Well, the next part of the text talks about how we can say that he does, he speaks. I, 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 it talks about like a, like a, how they are related. I, I, I know, but that he's going to say. We still say he speaks because there is some, some technical similarity, but we're not there yet. What, what was the last chapter about? last chapter about was saying, the last chapter okay. was saying is this, is that? The last chapter is saying is that the world is created from Hashem's speech and it's because Hashem's speech is utterly nothing. Hashem remains the same, yeah? Right? So the reason... One second. Now. Is it true that a spoken word is utterly insignificant? Well, let's think about it. We said it was utterly insignificant to the power of speech. To thought, to the underlying human experiences and faculties from which the thought was generated. In other words, how did we render this speech being the, the spoken word being nothing, non, non, not significant, by by framing it in terms of, of, of bigger things connected to relative to, source, relative to its source, relative to going inward to the speaker. But what happens as we think about the speech reverse now? The spoken word is meaningless in as much as we're talking about the feelings that you, you have that generated the thought that generated that was the base of the word, right? But the spoken word is a little bit more standing in the realm of thought. After all, thought is also language. And it certainly has more standing in the realm of speech because the power of speech is meant to produce speech. But now let's go one step further, shall we? Now let's talk about the spoken word on the level which it actually exists because where does the spoken word exist? Not internally, but... And on that... And so where the spoken word actually exists... Is it insignificant? No. You stupid people! 
Now, that, that was pretty significant if someone said that to you, right? Yeah. Why would it be pretty significant? Because it carries it. It carries meaning, it carries weight, right? Spoken words, do they matter? Yeah. And if teachers go around calling their students stupid, it would make a difference, right? Yeah. Okay. So, there was a kind of sleight of hand, which was, the spoken word is insignificant as long as we are thinking about Ourself. it terms, right, in terms it's of its relationship to its source, but not in terms of the, le- le- the, st- the place in which it actually exists. The spoken word exists outside the speaker, and there the words carry a lot of weight. Mm. But here we're saying no. One second. So therefore, I would come and say like as follows. Is our word... It, 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 if the world is created by God's spoken word... Is God really alone? Before, before they get this chapter, before God said the spoken word, there's no world. Now God says a spoken world word. It's insignificant. It's insignificant, but it's insignificant only if you look at it from God's from, from God's perspective internally. What if you look at it from God's perspective, acknowledging the extern, the extern, what is external to God? What if, no, it's like, I, spo- said, I say words right now. I just gave, if I scream at all the students, call them stupid, right? Can I recognize that that's a pretty significant thing to do? Yeah, yeah I just recognize it's significant by drawing my focus. Outside. Right, right, towards outside of me rather than. Okay, so, uh, so you know, as long as God is relating to the, wor- the word, from this kind of inward perspective, yeah, the word is insignificant on all these, for all these reasons. But the minute God relates to the word, for where the word actually is, what happens? And if the world is created from that, wor- from that word, from those words, then what happens? Then the world can have significance, yes? Yeah. So as long as God word is looking inward, is he alone? Yes. Once God looks outward, though, is he alone? No. Now, I mean, this is true with people, right? Anybody can be alone when you look inward. And if you look inward in a deep enough way, you can be alone even with lots of people around you, right? Like you're having no tact is that like your words mean nothing to you, but they affect everyone Right. <laughs> but they correct. They clear, right? So you know, in other words, chapter 20 doesn't actually explain how God remains alone. Because it's about internal. Because the entire way of explaining how the words were nothing was only as you look at things entirely internally. But the word doesn't exist internally. The word exists. What does chapter 21 come and say? Is there such a thing as external for God? So what is the only legitimate perspective on his word? In other words... Now, we do have a question here, which is why we're calling, why, why, why are we calling it spoken words at all? Okay, we're going to have to come back to that. We're going to have to deal with that. But in other words, the, chapter 20 was simply explaining how God remains alone from a certain point of view. Well, anything can remain, any sentient being can remain alone from a certain point of view. If you're sufficiently inward, then you can maintain a sense of aloneness in that sense, regardless of what happens, right? For sure. Something unique about God. What makes God alone is that all the other stuff comes about because of his word. The word is insignificant from an internal perspective. And for God, is there an external perspective? No, there is no God looking at beyond himself. So there's no God looking beyond himself. Then the word only exists in a state internally. 
Now, this creates a lot of questions. There's more to the chapter, but that's, in a certain sense, kind of the core thing. And in making this clear, we're going to skip for a moment. You see where you see the next the, the, on the on the right column. There's a little triangle, mm-hmm. and it starts yet. Yeah. Yet his so-called speech and thoughts are united within an absolute union. As for example, a person's speech and thought, whilst they are still in potentia in his wisdom and intellect, or in desire and craving that are still in his heart, prior to rising from the heart to the brain, whereby cognition they formulate into so-called letters. For at that time, the letters of thought and speech which evolved from that long desire were still in potential the heart. They were absolutely fused with the root, namely the wisdom and intellect, and being a longing desire in the heart. What is he saying? God's speech exists on what level? Like a person who hasn't yet spoken or hasn't even yet thought. Which we're going to have to come back to and deal with that. But let's just go on a simple level. Right? In order for you to speak, what has to happen? Your words have to go beyond yourself. Is there a beyond yourself for God? So even if God speaks, it's like he's never... So whatever results from his speech, verily keep going. So by way of example, the speech and thought of the Holy and Blessed be he are absolutely united with his blessed essence of being even after his blessed speech has already become materialized in the creation of worlds, just as we united with him before the worlds were created. Thus, there is no manner of change in his blessed self. That, if there is no out, again, the core idea, there's more here, but the core idea, if there's no beyond God, then God speaking is effectively the same thing as him. So whatever is created by his spoken word has the status of the spoken, has, has no more than the status of the spoken word before it was spoken. That's a separate question. And what are we being? Wait. So technically we're all created from his thought. No, we're created from his speech. That's why I asked you like a month ago. I'm, I'm aware of that. I'm aware of that. Are we all the mind? Is the whole world the mind? Well, <laughs> it, it, notice that we kept talking about speech. There is some reason why it's called speech. No. Okay. Okay, I just want everybody to look at the end, look at the beginning of chapter 22. Just look at the beginning. I, I'm jumping around because I want you to appreciate... This, the paragraph that we just read becomes like the core issue on which everything else is going to center around. Yet, since the Torah plays human language, the word of God, blessed be he, is actually called speech, like the speech of a? For in truth, it is by virtue of the scent and flow of life force to the lower planes. What, is he, what does that sound like he's saying? Does God's speech actually issue forth from God? What does chapter 22 say? What is chapter two? Read the, just read the beginning of chapter 22 and ask yourself, does it sound like we're said at the beginning of chapter 21? No, it's saying there's speech like this. Uh, the word of God must be is actually called speech like the speech of a human being. Yeah. And the first quote is... That's right. Okay. Okay, so I want everyone... This chapter... It's talking about how it's not like our speech. This chapter, right... Now, like this. Chapter 20 was dealing with the fact that the word compared to its source is nothing, right? Chapter 21 is dealing with the fact that there is no such thing as outside the source. And then chapter 22 is going to say, but there somehow still is kind of something like outside the source. 
when God speaks, or when we speak, what happens? We're taking something that was internal and we are making it external. That's what speech is. That's why it's useful to communicating with others. Chapter 21 says, God does not have an outside of himself. So by definition, there is no speech. Okay. And the consequence of that would be whatever significant speech can have beyond the speaker, God's speech can't have. And then chapter 22 is going to then qualify everything we just said in chapter 21. It's not going to uproot it. It's not going to negate it. It's going to reframe it and qualify it. It says, it says, we said chapter 20 says word compared to the word compared to the source. Chapter 21 is there's no such thing as outside the source. And then chapter 22 is going to say, well, there is in some sense some notion of outside the source without contradicting what it says in 21. And then when we finish chapter 22, we'll then have a full, complete understanding of what it means, the unity of God. And then we can start talking about what mitzvahs are and what sins are, right? Because that was, that, was, that was how we got into this, right? We were just trying to understand how, how every time you do a mitzvah, you're actually doing the mitzvah of the unity of God. And every time you sing, you're actually doing the mitzvah of idolatry. So that your natural aversion to idolatry and devotion to the unity of God can then be channeled into every aspect of your Judaism. Right? That's the only reason we're talking about this stuff. But it's so easy to forget. Okay. Now we have a parenthesis. Just as his thoughts is not like our thoughts. As written, for my thoughts are not like your thoughts. And so my ways are higher than your ways. The parenthesis from where, sorry, I went back to where we left off in chapter 21. Okay. So he says, this idea that his speech is not like our speech, Right? So much so that you even question why it's called speech at all. This is not unique to God's speech. This is also true of God's thoughts. Okay. What way are God's thoughts not like our thoughts? Right? He's, you know, what, what is the altruism? He's saying, I'm going to take an idea which you already understand, supposedly, which is God's thoughts are not like our thoughts, and say, the same way God's thoughts are not like our thoughts, so too God's speech is not like? Now remember, God's, the idea here is that what we mean by thought is really in some sense not remotely applicable with God. And yet for some technical reason, we're going to use the term thought. So what are thoughts? Yeah. When we reveal something to ourselves, like when we explain, I think that's, I don't remember exactly how we phrased it, but in what we just learned, how there's nothing outside of God, or there's nothing beyond God, he can't have our thoughts, because he can't have something that he's like, revealing to himself that isn't already there. Maybe there's no subconscious. Can you... Are you comfortable with the idea of people reading your thoughts? No. Why not? Because that's revealing too much. Because I don't even have control. Well, then you should work on that. <laughs> well, you put control on what you dwell on. What? 
It's revealing too much. I want to change slightly. It's not just revealing too much. If you ever sold, told someone some, but something when you were upset with them? When you were upset with them? Yeah. And then right after you said you wish you hadn't said it. Yeah. Can you unsay it? No. Had you just kept it in your thoughts? Could you... You as, can't unthink it. You actually can. You can unthink it? Why? I mean, how? How can you unthink it? So let's try and understand this. What, what, in what sense, when you say, I wish I could take it back, what do you mean? What do you mean you wish you could take it back? Why? Why? It's hurtful. Ah. So, what, what, so, so is it the issue that there was a particular point in time which words came out of your mouth, that's what bothers you? What bothers you is once those words came out of your mouth, forever for the rest of your life, when that person relates to you, part of the way they perceive you is? What you said. That's right. And can you undo that? No. If you could undo that, would it really matter to you that in the past the words came out of your mouth? No. Right. So when you say you wish you could undo it, it's not the act of speaking per it's se, the it's the effect. And you can undo the effect of your thoughts. Also, our thoughts have no effect. That's right. Thoughts are... That's right, but they have no effect on anything. Outside of us. Oh, and there's nothing outside of us. One second. They have no effect on anything outside of us, right? But now I want us to think about this notion of, of what it means they have effect on us versus they don't have an effect, they don't affect it outside of ourselves. Is it that the thoughts really have an effect on us or it's that thoughts are the way we... No, it's like this, yeah? I'll give you an example. It's not really that the thoughts per se have the effect on us. It's the way we think. So if you are trying to understand something and you're reviewing for a test and you just like, and let's say it's a test where you have to understand things, right? Not just regurgitate, you know, facts on command. And you just like go over all of the material in your head and you're thinking through everything. Are you going to do well on the, and you're just thinking through everything? Are you going to do well on the test? No, you actually need to stop and use those thoughts to access your reasoning, to access your understanding. In other words, just like you can speak without realizing what you're saying, you can think without really being mentally engaged with your thoughts. Okay. So when you use your thoughts in a way that your intellect or emotions are very invested and engaged with the thinking process, then you're able to affect yourself, right? Okay. But what's really having the effect? Is it the thoughts or the intellect and emotions? Right. In other words, in other words think about it like this. Your intellect and emotions, your these are the things that really define you and they really can change you, that can change yourself. However, you can't touch them directly. It's like a hot pot. So what do you need? You need a handle. But if you just have the handle and it's not connected to the pot, it doesn't do anything, right? So if you just think random collections of words and images without being intellectually, emotionally invested in those thoughts, what effect do they have on you? Nothing. Nothing. Do you want to hear something really wild? Do people have... Forbidden thoughts? Yes. Yeah. Do tzaddikim have forbidden thoughts? No. Yes, no. they do. What? They do. I thought that's only... But it doesn't affect them. That's right. Uh-huh. It's like schizophrenia. Do you know why? Because they don't apply it to anything. No. But they don't know Where do our thoughts come from? They are there. Where do our, uh, our inappropriate thoughts come from? From our psyche. From our psyche, from our intellect and from our emotions, right? Okay. So they're bringing out parts of ourselves? So they don't, they're not... 
emotions. Right. Where do the where do the truly righteous get their inappropriate thoughts from? From us. Yeah. Why? Wow, we are really bad for humanity. <laughs> Wait, why? It has to do with the interconnectivity of souls. We'll leave it at that. But it, yeah, it turns out that while regular people aren't aware of each other's thoughts, Sadiqim are aware of the thoughts of the so souls that their souls are connected to. There are forbidden thoughts. Yes. Oh right. <laughs> That means their way of dealing with forbidden thoughts is obviously going to be different than what's that? It, but but what would it, it it does mean that their way of dealing with forbidden thoughts is going to be different than ours because they're just dealing with the thought, whereas we are never just dealing with the thought. We're dealing with. No, it makes sense. Like if a if a friend tells you like a problem they're having, you are able to like yeah. grapple with the problem, but it's not like an exactly. But even if it doesn't affect them, it's still in their thought. What's the problem? Yeah, then they, they really bad. Yeah, so walk on the streets that we walk. Well, that's that. I mean, on the one hand, on the other hand, maybe they do stuff with those thoughts to help get rid of, help us get rid of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but but point is, in other words, so we say thought deeply affects us. Is it thought itself, or it's the fact that our souls are invested in our thoughts, and it's the soul kind of affects itself via the thought? Okay, so far so good. So the thought really doesn't have any power of its own. As opposed to words, even a word that you did not really mean that deeply. It came out, you didn't really mean it. It was a, so to speak, Freudian slip. Can still destroy somebody's relationship with someone else, right? It can have life-altering consequences. Because unlike our thoughts, words, they're real. They are real. What is the measure of something being real? It has... Power, it has effects. And the more real something is. That it does. It does. Try try the following. Take a rock, okay? Throw it at a window and see what happens to the window. <laughs> but was it the rock or was it your force to throw it? But here's the thing. When you when you throw when you throw things that are not real at the window, nothing happens. Or another example, okay? If you trip and fall, it makes a difference whether you fall on a rock or on a pillow. You trip over a rock. You trip over the rock. The rock is real. It has effects. Now, rocks only have rocks don't have the ability to actively affect things. Fine, granted, but they have real effects. But shots also have effects. No, they don't. No, they don't. So what if it has the real effects? Thoughts. In Judaism, they do. No, they don't. Thoughts have effects. Thoughts have effects in the following cases, and what you'll see is that thought is never having the effect. Either you're emotionally, intellectually engaged with the thought, in which case, what's really having the effect is not the thought, but the intellectual, emotional engagement, or the thought gets spoken out or acted upon, in which case, the thing that's actually having the effect is the speech or the action. The thought is kind of like, on its own, it's like neither here nor there. That's what people can do during your actions and not like who you think you are. Like your yeah, so like, so there's things like, as long as I, you know, if someone upsets you and a, and a really nasty thought comes to your mind, right? As long as you can process away that emotion, no harm, no foul, right? <laughs> but the minute it comes out of your mouth, even if they forgive you, it's not the same as had it never been spoken, right? Because words are real. And thoughts, not really real. They don't have that substance to them. So when she says your thought, I mean, it's 
mitzvah. That actually has to do with intention. Yeah, yeah, you have to be careful. That's the thing. When I intend to do a mitzvah and I'm not able to do a mitzvah, Hashem does give us a certain kind of merit as if we did the mitzvah. I know, I know, I know. You have to learn to not be like so nitpicky about wording and be more sensitive to what, what, what the subject matter actually is. Okay, so what does that mean? The more I think about what thought is, it's like a nothing. I mean, it's not that it doesn't exist at all, but it's like, it carries no weight of its own. Oh, it does. When you say something but to somebody... you're saying it because of your thought. No, no, you're actually saying it because you made a decision on some level to say it. But it's only affecting the other thought, person because of emotion. That's true. So we see something very interesting. Thought is necessary for other stuff to happen, but it of its own can't actually get anything done. Oh, that's, that's what... Thought is weird. You can't really think deep. You can't really develop your, your intellect without thought. You can't really process your emotions without thought. You can't even be aware concretely of your emotions without thought. You certainly cannot figure out how to communicate with others without thought. And yet, if all I have is just thought itself, what happens? Nothing. So thought, thought is necessary for everything else to function, but it of itself accomplishes, achieves. So it's kind of like has an unrealness to it in and of itself. Now, what about God's thought? Is God's thought so pathetic? No, God's thought is real. In fact, if God thinks about something, it really is that way. God's thoughts are real. They have is consequences. It, is it like God's consequential action? Like, is it like a thought and then it appears? Is it like personal creation that's really thinking about it? It's like... If God thinks, then, then it is if he has already done it. Oh, yeah. Because you can't no... think about something that has not been... No, 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 because, because I want you to think about it. Thought is defined by us by its deficiency, its inability to actually achieve something. And by definition, God is not lacking. God is not deficient. So what we mean by thought can't exist by God. Because what we mean by thought is something which only carries any weight when something, when there's you know, emotions invested in it, intellect invested in it, when it becomes, the, when, when there's words that carry it outwards beyond itself. But if it's own, it's... it's it's weak. It's pathetic. And that, you, if that is a defining characteristic of thought. What's the thought of God? We'll, we'll get to later what's the difference between God's thoughts and God's word, speech. I just want, I, I, I want to be, I want to finish this. I can't give an example of what his thought is though. If God has a thought, is it going to have an effect? Yes. Is it effect going to be weak? No. Is its effect going to be incomplete? No. So his thought is not like our thought at all. It's more like speech and action. Yeah. Okay. So what about his thought then? That's a good question. We have that. We have that. Mm-hmm. What Zalkar was saying is, we have a verse that says Hashem's thoughts are not our thoughts, and there's a classic explanation of that. The classic explanation of that is, when we think of things, nothing happens because thoughts, in a certain sense, aren't real in and of themselves. They're real in what they contain or what they serve as a basis for, but they themselves have no power, no influence, no nothing. And, and with God, there's no such concept of something that is powerless, that, that's unreal in and of itself. So when we say God thinks, it's much more like speaking and doing than thinking. So whatever the explanation is, okay? So I'm just saying, the same way there, there was something fundamental about thought that just isn't true about God. 
there's something fundamental about speech, which isn't true about God. So in what way is God's thoughts not like our thoughts? No effect. Right, no effect, because right, things are, the reality, of, when we say things are real, we think about them in terms of their effects. How impactful are they? God's thoughts are infinitely impactful. Our thoughts are on their own, zeroly impactful. That's a huge difference. What's the difference between our speech and God's speech? Our speech, our speech goes beyond us and is, a, and is in some sense separated from us because it exists beyond us. That's what speech is for us. And for God, that's not what speech is. The parentheses here are just, Valter was just showing this, this what I'm arguing here about speech, it's not a novel thing to say. We already say it about thought. We also say it about Okay. So now the next part of the paragraph has to explain in what sense God's speech can be called like speech at all. 